From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. In this hour, the turbulence at Elon Musk's Twitter and more than 280 characters. And Ron Elving on the week that saw Speaker Pelosi step down and a special counsel appointed to investigate the former president. And later, Buffalo belted by snow. The World Cup opens in a swirl of controversy and no beer for fans. And Elvis Mitchell's new documentary presents the history of black cinema from the first silent films to the roars of black heroes. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Sidney Poitier, Pam Greer, Billy D. Williams, and many names you may not know as well. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, November 19, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Former President Donald Trump is slamming the Justice Department's decision to appoint a special prosecutor to oversee the criminal investigations against him. They want to do bad things to the greatest movement in the history of our country, but in particular, bad things to me, but I've gotten used to it. It's lucky. Trump spoke to supporters last night at a black tie event at Mar-a-Lago after Attorney General Merrick Garland named veteran prosecutor Jack Smith as special counsel. Smith most recently served as a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague and previously oversaw the Justice Department's public integrity section. He will now oversee the department's January 6th investigation and the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Western New York is getting slammed by heavy lake effect snow. Several feet have fallen since Thursday and more snow is expected this weekend. New York's governor has issued a state of emergency in several counties. Lawyers representing an Indiana doctor have asked a judge to block the state attorney general from requesting information about her patients and their medical records. Indiana Public Radio, or rather Public Broadcasting's Violet Comber-Weiland reports the doctor's lawyer calls the investigation an unchecked overstep by the AG's office. Dr. Caitlin Bernard has been under fire from Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita since she provided an abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. Rokita has brought up alleged consumer complaints as part of his investigation. Bernard's lawyer, Kathleen Delaney, says those allegations are untrue. The consumer complaints were 100% filed by people who had never met Dr. Bernard, had never gotten medical care from Dr. Bernard, were not involved in the care of this patient in any way, shape or form. A spokesperson for Rokita said the Office of the Attorney General always follows the law. The hearing continues on Monday. For NPR News, I'm Violet Comber-Weilin in Indianapolis. Former Silicon Valley star Elizabeth Holmes has been sentenced to 11 years in federal prison following her fraud conviction this year. NPR's Bobby Allen reports Holmes begged for mercy at her sentencing hearing, but the judge called the case troubling. Holmes apologized through tears and told the judge, quote, I regret my failings with every cell of my body. But her failings amounted to hundreds of millions of dollars in fraud. Holmes pitched a breakthrough blood analyzing device that she said could scan for a thousand different conditions with just a pinprick of blood. But it was eventually revealed that the technology's capabilities were largely fabricated. Holmes, who is 38 and pregnant with her second child, had faced a maximum penalty of 20 years behind bars. The judge gave her 11 years for both the egregiousness and the scale of the crime, saying it would send a message to Silicon Valley that innovators who lie to drum up investment will face consequences. Bobby Allen, NPR News, San Jose. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released documents obtained by the Boston Globe show Florida paid $1.5 million to an in-state aviation company overseeing the flight of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Although the Ohio-based charter flight company involved had quoted the state a price of only about $150,000 for the effort. It is unclear why Florida paid the extra money. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis flew roughly 50 migrants to the vineyard from Texas in September. It was part of his plan to send unsuspecting migrants to Democratic states. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is in the process of installing wrong-way detection systems along highway ramps. The technology will be installed at 16 pilot locations across the state by the end of the year. So far, five of them are up and running. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver explains what happens when a driver heads the wrong way on a ramp. The LED signs light up, they flash, they're very, very clearly in your face and uh, and really alert the driver that they are doing something wrong and that they need to stop and turn around. Gulliver says if the driver does not turn around after those warning lights, then an alert will go out to state police and other drivers. Tenants of a Worcester apartment building where the roof collapsed this summer are seeking monetary damages for expenses incurred from the from the collapse. The Telegram and Gazette reports the tenants have filed at least 22 counterclaims in state housing court. They claim the building's management company was aware of the roof's condition when it acquired the building but did not repair it in a timely manner. About 80 residents in the 32-unit complex were evacuated following the roof collapse. It's 32 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today and highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state, and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. Most of the midterm elections have been called, and we do know congressional leadership will be different. My colleagues, I stand before you as Speaker of the House, as a wife, a mother, a grandmother, a devout Catholic, a proud Democrat, and a patriotic American, a citizen of the greatest republic in the history of the world. Speaker Pelosi announced Thursday that she will not seek another term as Democratic leader in the House. NPR senior correspondent and editor Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The Speaker is 82 and promised four years ago she would step down this year, but the Democrats just confounded a lot of predictions in the midterms. She has only gained in popularity over the past couple of years. As I don't have to tell you, promises in politics can be conditional. Are, are you surprised by her decision? No, not really. Each of those factors you mentioned was indeed important. But in the end, she stuck with the plan, which was to lead a dignified generational passing of the torch. And it was also clear that her decision was affected by the situation with her husband, Paul, who was severely injured by an intruder last month. 
someone who broke into their home, apparently seeking to harm or even kidnap the speaker. So both Nancy and Paul Pelosi are 82. And um, without this leadership burden, she's going to be free to spend more time with him and with their five children and nine grandchildren, all of whom she name-checked in that farewell speech this week. Uh, And then, of course, there was the vow that she had made to secure the speakership back in 2018 that you mentioned. Uh, That was right after the Democrats had won a majority in the House. Of course, a number of Democratic members have already announced they're running for leadership positions. What, uh, What do you foresee? Well, they're going to be younger and more diverse, and that is consonant with the Democratic Party's new profile and new message. Our three leaders have stepped forward, and they're in good shape to be elected officially later this month. Hakeem Jeffries, New York City, uh, 30 years younger than Pelosi, will be the first African-American member to lead either of the major parties in either the House or the Senate. Uh, Jeffries will present a great contrast in other ways as well, uh, generally a very low-key legislator who tends to favor consensus over controversy. Uh, Catherine Clark from suburban Boston is positioned to be the Democratic lip, uh, excuse me, the Democratic whip. <laughs> <laughs> well, that a, a little contenders. bit of a lip, too. There, there'll the be a lot of yeah. contenders for that, though, Scott. Yeah, you know that. Yes. Uh, Pete Aguilar, a uh, Latino from California, uh, will be the Democratic Caucus chair if uh, this group holds together, and we do believe they have the inside track. Yeah. Donald Trump uh, took the stage in Mar-a-Lago this week to announce he'd run for president again, and, uh, of course, just a couple of days later, the attorney general uh, named a special prosecutor to oversee investigations into the former president's activities. What do we make of these two events? Well, they're not unrelated, to be sure. Uh, Trump jumped very early on the 2024 announcement, uh, in part because he had planned to ride the big red wave. That didn't happen. Also, in part to freeze prospective rivals for the Republican nomination. But ultimately, it seems he was creating a narrative here with which to discredit Merrick Garland's expected prosecution of his case. And now we know that Garland was not intimidated, and Jack Smith is a former head of the Public Integrity Division of DOJ. He has a formidable reputation uh, for toughness and for handling complicated cases and politically sensitive cases, and none of that is good news for the former president. Feel the need to mark the 80th birthday of President Biden tomorrow. He's been counted out politically so many times, really, over the past 30 years. Uh, and then he uh, managed to avoid a widely predicted uh, election losses in the middle of a difficult economy and foreign crisis. What's his secret sauce? You know, Biden must now face the age-old question, how old is too old to be president? And the Biden of today is not the Biden of 30 years ago, or even perhaps the Biden of three years ago. He's given to verbal gaps in moments of physical uncertainty, but these midterms had to be encouraging for him, and Trump's announcement is an added incentive for Biden to run. Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Mass layoffs. Call from the C-suite to be extremely hardcore, and then mass resignations. Twitter's little blue bird has been caught in some major turbulence, but are declarations of Twitter's demise with users tweeting farewell premature. And here's Camila Dominoski, as her thumb <laughs> hovering over the app's icon. Camila, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Is it still up and functioning? The site is, let me check. 
Yep, it's still there. Tweets are still loading on the timeline. The risk, obviously, is that this could change basically at any time, right? Elon Musk laid off a bunch of people. It was the first thing he did when he bought Twitter. And then this week, there were more mass resignations. So now the question is really, if something breaks at Twitter, do they have the people on staff they need to fix it? And the bigger question here is not just technological. I mean, a social media platform, its true value is who is on it, right? Like you can still pull up MySpace as a site, but it's not MySpace anymore like it was back in the day. Well, I will take your word for that. I, I haven't <laughs> looked at it for a while. But what about Twitter users? Because what amounts to a kind of uh, wake has been going on site. But after all, they need to turn to Twitter to hold the wake. Yeah, it is not a MySpace situation yet, right? In fact, Elon Musk has been gleefully asserting Twitter usage is at all-time highs. All those people logging in to tweet farewell, it's a lot of traffic. There is a question, I think, about whether people are using Twitter in the same way that they used to, right? All this chaos did a number on Twitter's credibility. The ability to buy blue checks, which used to verify that you were who you said you were, that created confusion about which accounts were real. That doesn't matter if you're just there for the memes and the lulls, but if you are on Twitter because you care about getting accurate information, that might matter to you a lot, and that sense of trust could be hard to get back. So I don't know. I think it's an open question whether Twitter is going to remain Twitter as it was or become something else. Another open question. <laughs> what is Elon Musk doing and why? Why would someone pay $44 billion for a company, then fire most of the people who made it and release and unrelease features while tweeting crass jokes yeah, about it? a good That's way of question. putting it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I am not in the business of explaining Elon Musk's psychology, but I called up someone who kind of is. I'm the only guy that Elon allows to talk to the media constantly. He, he should probably be paying me, to be honest. That's Ross Gerber, a longtime Tesla investor. Musk made a lot of money for Tesla fans like him, and he believes in Elon Musk's instincts. That's why he chipped in some money to help Musk buy Twitter. Here's his take on what's happening. He has to put himself in horribly difficult situations to thrive, and that's just the way he is. And Tesla, which just a few years ago was in a perpetual crisis, is now actually successful. So he's like, I'm happy, things are going well. I'm having kids with every woman I meet. You know, what could I do to really make my life difficult? Oh, I'll buy a social media company and try to fix it all in an area that I have very little skill set at doing. That'll be wonderfully challenging for me. So there's one theory for you. Elon Musk was too happy, so he bought Twitter to make life more interesting. You know, some people just would have bought a puppy. Um, <laughs> What, what else could explain this? All right. Other theories include maybe he has a grand master plan and this will all end with a revamped, much improved, super profitable Twitter. Or maybe he has a secret plan in the other direction. He's trying to destroy Twitter on purpose so he can declare bankruptcy and restructure the giant debt he saddled the company with. And, you know, maybe there's no plan. I really think you can't discount the possibility that what looks like it doesn't make sense, actually, none of it makes sense. Well... It's a tweet you can pin, NPR's Camila Dominoski on the Twitter beat. Thanks so much. Thank you. I was a little sniffy when Michael Gerson became a columnist for the Washington Post in 2007. He'd been a speechwriter for President George W. Bush, and while he'd crafted some of the president's most memorable lines, I was suspicious of the revolving door between politics and journalism. 
The columnist ought to have opinions, but I didn't believe they should be predictable or polemical. In fact, I still believe that. But I was wrong about Mike Gerson. Mike died this week of cancer at the age of 58. He had worked for politicians and evangelical leaders, but Mike's own voice in his columns was eloquent, singular, faithful, and often surprising. He made you want to know what he thought. We exchanged emails but never met. Mike once wrote a nice column about a book I wrote about adoption, reflecting on the adoption story that brought his wife from Incheon, South Korea, to St. Louis, where the two met his children. Mike was righteously critical in recent years of what he called a racist strategy among what had once been his own Republicans. He came to support more gun regulations, asking after this year's shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, is the slaughter of innocence the unavoidable price of freedom? Some of his most memorable and resonant columns were drawn from his own family life. In 2013, after leaving his youngest son at college, he wrote, His life is starting for real. I have begun the long letting go. But another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes. I have no possible future that is better without him close. Parenthood offers many lessons in patience and sacrifice, but ultimately, it is a lesson in humility. The very best thing about your life is a short stage in someone else's story. And it is enough. And when he brought a new puppy, Jack, into his life this year, Mike recalled his last dog, Lotte, who had comforted him through depression and cancer treatments. Can dogs really love, he asked. Science might deny that the species possesses such complex emotions, but I know dogs can act in a loving fashion and provide love's consolations, which is all we really know about what hairless apes can manage in the love department as well. Why do we take in new dogs? Because their joy for living renews our own. In a profession where we now talk about reach and analytics, page views and retweets, Mike Gerson's words pierced into our hearts. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Among the stories we're following, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker's commuting a first-degree murder sentence and granting pardons to six people. Also, it's the start of the World Cup. Take the news with you this weekend on the WBUR mobile app. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The snowstorm that's been battering parts of western New York State is being blamed for killing at least two people. Authorities say they died while shoveling. Several feet of snow has fallen in parts of the region and more is expected this weekend. Former President Donald Trump is slamming the Justice Department's decision to appoint a special prosecutor to oversee the criminal investigations against him. He spoke last night at Mar-a-Lago after Attorney General Merrick Garland said it's the right thing to do now that Trump is running for 
president again, and President Biden is likely to run in 2024. And President Biden's granddaughter, Naomi, is marrying her fiancé, Peter Neal, at the White House today. The ceremony is to be held on the South Lawn. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the market. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. More than four feet of snow in 24 hours. That's a lot. Even for western New York, that's used to heavy snowfall. One of the worst storms that part of the country has seen in years. But not everybody sees the same amount. Member station WBFO's Emily Watkins joins us from Buffalo. Emily, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. What's it look like? Well, it's very different depending on where you are. For example, if you drive from north of the city to south of it, you're going to go from seven inches of snow to over five feet. And in a town south of Buffalo called Hamburg, things are really quite bad. Um, Emergency crews there are struggling to reach people. But north of downtown Buffalo, things are really different. There's only a few inches of snow. Snow is part of the scenery there in Buffalo, not to sound indifferent. Uh, How are people holding up? I mean, some people are very stressed and overwhelmed or annoyed, but some people are enjoying it. They love the weather. They're outside with their dogs or their kids. I talked to a college student, Kyra Laurie. She got stranded at her parents' house in a suburb called Orchard Park. That got several feet of snow. She's having a good time with her family and she's playing with her siblings, but Laurie says something I hear from a lot of people. This storm caught her by surprise. Being from Buffalo, you just assume that you'll make it. You can, you can truck through any kind of snowstorm. But I feel like this one's been really aggressive. Unfortunately, we've already seen two people die from cardiac events. That's something that can happen when older people or people with chronic illnesses try to shovel this really heavy, wet snow. Um, we've had a partial building collapse already. And in some areas, police can't reach people stranded in their cars. And there's going to be more snow today and wind. Uh, how can snow crews keep up? I mean, it's really difficult for these snow crews. They're working around the clock to clear the snow. And again, it's a wet, heavy snow, and it's falling much faster than normal. I talked to John Pilato. He's the highway superintendent in the town of Lancaster. He's trying to keep his snow crews fed and rested while they camp out at the highway department. Bought as much food and grub that we could just to have on hand for these guys. We bought a bunch of K-cups so we could keep them a little bit caffeinated and fueled up. Um, It's hard. Emily, as a Chicagoan, I know that uh, residential streets are often cleared after highways, but if you can't or won't drive, those are exactly the streets you need to be able to walk down to get to a store. Exactly. I mean, this is a population that often gets overlooked in these events, even though they are disproportionately impacted. I talked to Kevin Heffernan. He's with an organization called Go Bike Buffalo. They advocate for pedestrians with disabilities, cyclists, and transit riders, and they've been really pushing the city for over a year 
to put in place sidewalk snow removal programs. Right now, it's the property owner's responsibility to clear that snow, and he points out that one in four households in Buffalo don't own a car. If the snow stops tomorrow and those streets aren't cleared within a matter of hours, that's when you start to see frustration really start to mount. It's Buffalo. We, we shouldn't have to uh, spend three, four days digging out of a storm. We're, we're used to this. We should have good plans in place. Well, we will uh, keep an eye on that. Member Station WBFO's Emily Watkins, thanks so much for being with us, and uh, stay warm. Thank you. The FIFA World Cup kicks off tomorrow in Qatar. The choice of the Persian Gulf nation has been controversial from the start. Qatar's scalding summer heat forced the tournament to be held in November, and human rights groups roundly criticized conditions that migrant workers had to work under. But FIFA has defended its choice and sometimes forcefully. In a press conference today, FIFA president Gianni Infantino called the criticism of Qatar hypocrisy. He said Western countries should instead apologize for their historical wrongdoings. Ken Bensinger of the New York Times joins us. He's the author of Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. Why was Qatar selected? Qatar was selected in 2010. At the time, it was a real head-scratcher as to why they would pick Qatar. FIFA's own technical committee rated it the worst of all bids, so everyone was confused. But in the years since then, we've learned a lot about how they got the votes of the key FIFA executives. And it seems like a combination of influence, peddling, soft and hard power, and even potentially some bribes being paid out to the influential voters. Well, give us some specifics. So a good example of this would be that Qatar's influence was seen in France with the French representative to FIFA, um, a former player named Michel Platini, one of the great all-time players who was very influential in FIFA. And it came out later that he was summoned to the Champs-Élysées where then France President Sarkozy said he wanted to meet him. This was only a few weeks before the critical vote, and Platini walked into a dining room to find the president of France and the emir of Qatar sitting there, and they were, had negotiated a deal not only for Qatar to buy airliners from Airbus, but also to buy Sarkozy's favorite soccer team, <laughs> and also to buy the rights to France's soccer league on television in France. So Qatar had basically injected a ton of money into France, and the president of France made it very clear to Platini where he should be voting. U.S. Department of, of Justice has conducted an investigation, haven't they? Yes, and it began in secret in 2010. And as many listeners may remember, in 2015, there was some sensational arrests in Zurich when a bunch of FIFA officials were literally dragged out of their hotel after being indicted in Brooklyn federal court. An interesting development just on Thursday of this week was that one of the people in that indictment, a guy from Trinidad and Tobago named Jack Warner, had lost his big appeal uh, against extradition to the U.S. I certainly want us to pay attention to the human rights questions because the entire labor force that built these World Cup venues are migrant workers. And according to Human Rights Watch, labor conditions are, are dangerous, aren't they? Yeah. And Qatar is a country that for many years 
used a, a system that many human rights groups worry exploited laborers and in some cases kept people's passports so they couldn't even leave the country and paid people um, wages that were of substandard for the kind of work they were doing. Some reports have indicated that hundreds, if not thousands of workers died in the process of building the stadiums and other infrastructure for the cup. Would it not have been possible for FIFA to simply say, Cotter, you want the games, you're going to have to have a clause that says you will obey international labor laws and basic human rights? I think that would have been possible. I think FIFA would have a lot of leverage, but FIFA did not appear to care to exercise that leverage. Qatar is a country with, by international standards, some pretty re restrictive and repressive laws about all kinds of things. You know, adultery is, is a punishable by prison. Homosexuality is illegal there. And FIFA has basically remained silent on this. FIFA, in fact, sent a letter to every national team competing in the tournament asking them to not mention politics, to stay out of politics. FIFA's position on this has been to basically lay down and let Qatar dictate what is and what is not allowed. And what has Cotter said about this uh, vast assortment of charges? Cotter has denied most of the charges and has said that it is the, a victim of racism and persecution against them by countries in the West that don't want a tournament to be held in a predominantly Arab country in a different region of the world. Generally, Qatar has been intransigent about any of the accusations, even in the face of things like Justice Department indictments. It's also worth mentioning that the president of FIFA, whose name is Gianni Infantino, has taken the extremely unusual, probably unprecedented step of moving to Doha, Qatar, and his children are in private school there. So the symbolism of that is hard to miss. In At least for now, FIFA has become what we might call a wholly paid subsidiary of Qatar. Ken Benziger of the New York Times, thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thank you so much for taking interest. Just a few days before Thanksgiving, a time when we express thanks for many blessings, including that B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. Would you like to come up with a dish that might make your guests smitten? Nobody better to ask than Deb Perlman, creator of the fabulously popular Smitten, <laughs> Smitten Kitchen cookbooks and website. NPR's Melissa Block met up with her in New York for a vegetable-centric cooking adventure. And first, we shop. We've come to the Union Square Green Market on a brisk, sunny morning. And Deb Perlman, she's winging it. Did I make a grocery list? No, I'm going on vibes. Going on vibes. Here's our mission. We've asked Deb for some dishes that can feed a crowd and that are budget conscious, since food prices are high this Thanksgiving. And they've got all the squash, so I'm gonna take a look at what they have. She picks out some heavy squat kabocha squash. It's a dark orange and it really roasts up nicely, so. This farmer's market is a full vegetable utopia, a kaleidoscope of lush greens, vibrant crimsons and purples. Should we get those cranberry beans? Do we want a bean salad? Sounds great to me. All right, I'm going to put the Deb makes a beeline for baskets of those cranberry beans. They have beautiful speckled pods, magenta, and a pale creamy green. She adds a bag of arugula and then more inspiration. She spies some purple cauliflower. This one is so cute. Small and like low commitment. Bag filled, back we go to the East Village apartment where she lives with her husband and two children. We are in the Smitten Kitchen. In the Smitten Kitchen, all of it. All 70 or so square feet of it, that is. There's minimal counter space, no fancy appliances. 
despite her best-selling cookbooks and her website with its scads of fanatic Deb Perlman disciples, it's not much of an upgrade from the humble kitchen she had when she started blogging about food in 2006, before things took off, improbably, for this self-taught cook. <laughs> Everything's a little crowded in the Smitten kitchen. You gotta move one thing to move another. On to the prep. One of the dishes Deb is making today comes from her new cookbook, Smitten Kitchen Keepers. Subtitle, New Classics for Your Forever Files. I worked in a nursing home a couple careers ago. Different story for another time. But if I would bring by a boyfriend and they liked him, he's a keeper. They would always say it. And I've always had that word in my head as it being like, it's better than best. It's something you want to keep around. Today's keeper recipe from the new book is wedges of braised winter squash. She calls this a fork and knife vegetable dish. When you're doing Thanksgiving, so many things are like stuffings and gratins and shredded with cream and cheese. Sometimes just like a recognizable vegetable is a, like an oasis on a plate. Along with the braised kabocha squash, Deb has decided to improvise a warm salad with that cute purple cauliflower. Oh. Gorgeous! I'm talking to my vegetables again. It'll get roasted and then tossed in a Dijon vinaigrette with the boiled cranberry beans and some emerald green arugula. You know, I mean, we eat with our eyes. Why shouldn't our food look beautiful? No need to take notes. We're posting both recipes on npr.org. It's time to roast. I always check for toys in the oven because it happens. It's definitely happened before with kids. Today, no toys, all clear. So the kabocha squash, sliced into wedges, goes onto a hot sheet pan, sizzling with butter and oil. And into the oven. Bye, see you in 15 minutes. Later, when the squash has a dark, crispy glaze, it'll get a bath of broth and cider vinegar, along with garlic and herbs. So do not skimp. Get the color you want. I love also the way it looks like flames almost. Ideally, Deb says, cooking should make you feel triumphant, like you want to do a victory lap. You know when you cook something and it's like really good and you're like, damn, I did that. I did that. I did that. I think you should feel that way about cooking. Okay, the two dishes are ready. Deb has tossed the warm cauliflower and bean salad, and she's arranged the fiery, deep orange squash wedges on top of a layer of tangy plain yogurt scattered with arugula. Mm. I like the way it came out. Creamy. It's roasted squash, but to me it's much more interesting. It's more salty. It's more earthy. There's a bit of the vinegar. I just had a pop of the garlic clove. I'm trying the cauliflower thing now, which I just made up. We'll see if we like it. Mmm. I do. So good. Thank you. And I love that we bought this two hours ago. Well, Deb Perlman, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for letting me into your, your smitten kitchen. <laughs> Thanks for coming over. Deb Perlman's new cookbook is Smitten Kitchen Keepers. Melissa Block, NPR News, New York. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
The UN Climate Conference in Egypt that wraps up this weekend has been full of commitments by countries to reduce carbon emissions, and for the most part, that means relying more on renewable energy, less on fossil fuels. As NPR's Ruth Sherlock found, when she went there, these efforts were met with some resistance, and not least perhaps because of who was at the conference. Walk through the massive pavilions of the UN Climate Conference and you might be surprised by who you'd find. Stands for oil companies, major oil producing nations and lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry. To some extent, this isn't new. Oil and gas companies have had a presence at this annual climate change event known as COP for many years. But rights groups say that this year the number increased by a quarter. So we analysed who's here at COP27 and we found 636 people registered for COP representing the fossil fuel industry. This is Louis Wilson from Global Witness, a climate and human rights group that helped compile the data. He says this year, fossil fuel representatives outnumbered delegates from the 10 countries worst affected by climate change. I think the industry recognises that we're at a pivotal moment, and so they're here on force trying to make sure that world leaders double down on extractive projects, that they double down on the fossil fuels that put us here in the first place. I searched the conference pavilions to put this allegation to a fossil fuel representative. A stand for Saudi Arabia, one of the biggest oil producers, had LED screens showing close-ups of tree canopies and a touchscreen quiz asking, how green is your lifestyle? But the Saudi climate envoy ignored mine and other journalists' requests for an interview, and so did many others from the oil industry. I did eventually speak with Andres Hubi from Mercuria, a global energy company that trades in oil, among other things, about why there were so many industry representatives at the conference. It's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that is important to try to, to understand is that this company wants to change. He listed his own work. I have been working on the carbon market for 15 years, doing reforestation, uh, uh, red projects, agroforestry, trying to deploy capital. Oil and gas companies say they belong at these conferences because they can play a role in reducing the emissions that are causing global warming. But Delta Myrna at the Union of Concerned Scientists disagrees. I think history shows that they don't have a role to play at COP. She says for years oil and gas companies have provided disinformation about the effects of fossil fuels and stood in the way of change. So the fact that they've played an active role for decades now to prevent climate action from really moving forward, I think discredits them from being at the table today. It's difficult to quantify the impact that industry representatives have at these conferences. Many located in the trade show section of the conference emphasised new technologies, like devices to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But they were also at the negotiating table, meaning they could weigh in on key discussions, like whether countries should reduce their reliance on the very oil and gas these companies produce. And analysts say some use the conference to make business deals that will expand the use of polluting fossil fuels. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Sharma Sheikh. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Baker wants the legislature to approve more support for emergency shelters in Massachusetts. He says the shelter system is facing strains caused by the high price of housing and an increase in migrants to the area. Yesterday, Baker filed a $139 million supplemental budget calls for creating at least 1,300 additional sheltered units. It is Parade Day in Plymouth. Opening ceremonies are set to begin at 9.30 this morning for the annual Plymouth Hometown Parade. The parade kicks off at 10 o'clock. It focuses on highlighting aspects of the country's history through the past five centuries. In sports, the Celtics' winning streak now stands at nine games. Last night, the Celtics beat the Pelicans 117-109. to Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Chicago Blackhawks. It is 34 degrees in Boston. Sunny skies today and highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. The British International School of Boston, thinking beyond traditional education, collaborating with MIT and Juilliard. Open house tomorrow. Register at bisboston.org. And Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at cres.org slash wbur. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, you're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks. A year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Longtime film critic Elvis Mitchell is now taking a turn behind the camera. He's out with a new documentary on Netflix called Is That Black Enough For You? Don't worry, there's still a lot of Elvis's signature cinema scholarship. The movie is also a sharp-eyed celebration of talents from black cinema. Some who became known to a wider public, like Sidney Poitier, Pam Greer, Richard Roundtree, and Billy Dee Williams, but some less so. And Elvis Mitchell, the critic, scholar, and once film commentator of this very program, in addition to hosting the program The Treatment uh, from member station KCRW, joins us from Los Angeles. Elvis, it's so wonderful to speak with you again. Hi, Scott. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> I, I knew you've been preparing something like that. I just knew I had to tee it up for you. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this film, which I gather has like 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, right? Uh, you gathered that from me, but yes, as of this, as of when we're speaking, it's a 100%. The title comes from... Explain that story for us. It's a line from the movie Cotton Comes to Harlem, but it's a line that repeats throughout the movie and takes on different 
permutations and connotations every time it's spoken, sometimes ironically, sometimes with sincerity, sometimes with vitriol for these talents in these movies. And this, I think, became this de facto movement, this expression of, of freedom and, and joy and just all these talents given, seizing, really, the opportunity to show what they had to offer. You bring us back to films that might be hard to find now. Tell us about the black cinema that grew up during the days of segregation. Well, gosh, you know, we look at the studio system where, you know, it was this factory. You had the director who did the work that they did, and the editors did their work, and the cinematographers. That was not the case in black cinema. These talents all had to do these things because that was the demand. If you were a, a filmmaker of color, you had to go find the money. You wrote the script. You cast it. If that's not enough, you went out and booked the, the movie into theaters on the black circuit. And one of the great points in the movie, and it breaks my heart to see it, Dr. King talking about the kind of entertainment that people of color were relegated to see. You saw second and third run movies in the, the colored theaters, as he says. My grandmother said she stopped going to movies because she went to a movie theater, which is probably some converted warehouse or yeah. grain silo or something in Mississippi, and they stopped the projection because a bat got loose in the theater. And she just said, I don't need to spend money to go be chased by bats. And she left. We know and honor Harry Belafonte, Sammy Davis Jr., Diane Carroll. But you suggest they could have, should have had bigger film careers. This is going to sound naive, but what happened? I think it's not naive at all. I think it's the unfortunate sort of inertia, the institutional racism that made up the entertainment business. Harry Belafonte, who was trained to be an actor and was born to be an actor, rather than make movies that he thought were demeaning to his people and himself, he chose not to act. He, he, he turned down Lilies of the Field? Absolutely. He didn't act from 1959 until 1970. And people were asking me, well, do you judge Sidney Poitier for having done them? And I said, no, because if Sidney Poitier had not done those movies, they would not have got made. Yeah. What did blowout hits like Shaft and Superfly create in cinema? Oh, my gosh, God, it's it's so interesting. I mean, may I ask if you ever got to see any of these movies in the theater before we go any further? Uh, I saw Shaft in the theater I and Superfly in the theater. I'm imagining you saw these movies in theaters with, with crowds of largely of people of color. Yeah. And there was an excitement being at ground zero of seeing that. It was like seeing a new planet being discovered, wasn't it? Yeah. And these films were, in their way, such pieces of guerrilla filmmaking. Uh, I have the cinematographer from Superfly talk about how they managed to get that incredible stunt of Ron O'Neill running down the street wearing a suede suit and high heels, <laughs> vaulting over a five-foot fence, jumping up onto a fire escape. You're watching the film projected. I remember as a kid saying, why are his hands shaking? And I realized it's the adrenaline from the chase. So I mean, this is, so yeah. much of this, too, is not only about the kind of enterprise and invention demanded of these filmmakers and, and talent, but the impact and influence that we are living with to this very day. Yeah. I have to ask because you have an interesting clip in here from no less than Bobby Seale. Was black exploitation black exploitation? You know, that's such a loaded question, Scott. I mean, because I don't have really an issue with the term, mm -hmm. but it's a dismissal. People mm -hmm. say, oh, those campy movies where nobody could act, and the action was badly staged. And I said, well, first of all, neither of those are true because the movies aren't campy. Uh, and I even use an example seeing this movie three the hard way which had jim brown jim kelly and fred williamson fighting these white supremacists who were dumping something into the water that was of detroit 
Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles that was going to kill all the people of color, which I thought was a hilarious premise. And my father explained to me that there was this thing called the Tuskegee experiment. What's the state of black film today for actors, for directors, for the audience? This is interesting because, I mean, I tend to think of a lot of the best black film, be it semi-psychotaxiplasm or killer of sheep or sweet sweetback for that matter, being made independently in ways that redefine what independent film was and created a way for people who imitated the, the manner in which these filmmakers worked. I wonder if that's happening to the same extent because being rejected by the mainstream gave these filmmakers ambitions to sort of show what was not being said. But there is, as often as not, a welcoming of, of, of black talent. You can't not think about what Jordan Peele did with Get Out and realize that it's being remade and don't worry, darling. The thing that scares me, again, this is just a, a fact of being old, I guess, is that black film is treated as a genre. There's not a black Western, it's a black film. It's not a black romantic comedy, it's a black film. So that one, one of these films fails, it's all black film being held down and being judged. Well, that one fails, maybe they'll all fail. Because I, I, during, and I don't know if you guys got this in, in DC, Scott, we had this thing in the West Coast called a pandemic. Um, <laughs> during this interregnum, I started getting these calls from studio executives. Listen, you know, we're putting together this, this blue ribbon panel to try to figure out how to deal with what's happened in the wake of George Floyd. And we want to try to go forward in some way that feels positive. And I said, I don't need to be on a panel. I don't have the time for this. Just hire some black people. It's really not that hard. Otherwise, what are we going to do in the, this blue ribbon panel on Zoom? I can't even get any pastry out of it. So I'm going to pass. Ah! No, thank you. Elvis Mitchell's new documentary, Is That Black Enough for You? On Netflix. Elvis, don't be a stranger. Well, all you got to do is call. You know how to find me. Mexico is mourning the loss of a beloved hero. She was brave, dedicated, tireless. And a Labrador retriever, Frida, the rescue dog, rose to fame, outfitted in her protective goggles and booties after Mexico's devastating 2017 earthquake. Be sure to join Ayesha tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday for the story of an extraordinary dog and how a country memorializes her. Listen live tomorrow morning at the station's website or at npr.org. Anthony Diamato has change on his mind. He wrote and recorded his album, Down Wires, that NPR Music called a modern folk gem in his dorm room. See me rise, like is clear, Jesus Christ, I don't know. Well, a lot's happened over the past 12 years. And that's a bit of the track trying to change from Anthony D'Amato's latest album. At first, there was nothing. The artist joins us himself on the road in Wisconsin. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Help us understand what's in these songs, what's behind these lyrics. What have the last few years been like for you? The same as it's been for a lot of people, there's been just, you know, so much up in the air and so much uncertainty. For me personally, I left home in, in January of 2020 to go down and I was doing some recording in 
New Orleans and I thought I was going to be down there for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And sure enough, I didn't get back home to New York City for about 18 months. I gather your parents got some bad news, too. Yeah, you know, both of my parents got diagnosed with different kinds of cancers in there. And, and there's a song on this record called Enough, which was something I wrote while I was on tour. And, and just, you know, it's, it's tough to be away uh, from the people that you care about. While you're a musician, you're traveling a lot, and you can't always be with the people you want to be with. So sometimes you write a song, and, and that's your way of communicating. Whatever daylight's left Before the twilight comes Whatever happens next It'll never be enough However many breaths Are left inside your lungs However many steps Let's uh, listen to the first track on your album, Long Haul. When you wake up from a bad dream, shivering, shaking above the bed sheets, call my name, you can count on me. That's just how it is, that's just how it be. You like trains, at least, I don't know if you like to be on them, but metaphorically, because uh, there's a running theme of a train rolling down the tracks their their photos and a music video that accompanied this album yeah i grew up around trains my dad he worked for a, a magazine about model railroads you know one of the things that happened during the kind of pandemic period where i wasn't touring i ended up out in durango colorado for quite some time where there's this uh, beautiful old the durango and silverton narrow gauge railroad this old mining railroad that's now a tourist attraction and I ended up going out there and spending a lot of time photographing that and, and getting to know the people who run that. And some of those photographs turn up in this book of photography that I released alongside the album. And then we shot the music video for Long Haul on the train out there. And it was a very special for me to, to kind of bring that part of my life into the music part of my life. Why'd you want a book of photos and lyrics along with the music? One of the things that I've heard from people on tour more and more is that they don't have a way to play CDs anymore. They still wanted to own the music. They still wanted to experience it in a physical, tangible way. And at the same time, you know, the photography has really been an important part of my creative expression and, and way of connecting with audiences. And so I decided I would try to combine those two things and release this book of photography that has all the lyrics to the album and a little essay about the record. And then it comes with a download code on the last page. So that way, you know, you can have this experience of losing yourself in the visual component. And to me, these images are all really connected to the songs and, and having that opportunity. I, I think that's something that gets lost a little bit in the age of streaming and kind of active listening versus passive listening. Yeah. Don't believe I ever heard uh, Arlo Guthrie say, and here's the download code. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, the times they are a changing. Oh, that's a good one. I think that's got the potential for a song in it. Yeah, I'll work on that. Let me ask you about a very outspoken song that's on this album. This track is called 
kind of strange. Black body getting colder, cut him down like a soldier. Nothing seems to change around here. What what brought this song up? Kind of strange was a song I, I I wrote that in in 2017 initially, and it kind of just keeps uh, staying true, unfortunately. And and I I guess it's kind of about the the deja vu of of watching racial violence at the hands of the police in this country, and and kind of just that eerie ease with which a large part of the country seems to move on each time that the same story plays out. And that's that line at the end of the song where the anchor man says, you know, tune in tomorrow to watch it happen again. And just that sense of discomfort that comes from feeling helplessness as a witness in the face of it, but also, you know, trying to question what your own culpability is as, as being part of this country where, you know, nothing seems to change. Let me ask you about one more song, and it's very, uh, very tough. This is Broke Tooth Smile. They don't know half of the hits I took. I'm not as sober as I think I look. Ain't no bruise that's gonna make me quit. I got a broke tooth smile and a bloody lip. Wow, where does this come from? Well, musically, I think at the time I was probably listening to a lot of old staple singer records and and I loved the idea of trying to write a song from the bass line first because as a, you know, as a folky singer-songwriter, I instinctually pick up the acoustic guitar and start strumming a lot of the time and, and that's where a song comes from and so I wanted to force myself to kind of write in a different way and and lyrically, I think, you know, anybody who's been in the music business or any kind of creative field for that matter for any amount of time you know what it's like to kind of have a, a door slammed in your face and you know if you believe in yourself enough you're, you're always going to find another door and, and that's what that song is about it's about getting knocked down and, and getting back up anthony diamato his new album at first there was nothing out now thanks so much for being with us thanks for having me This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. The Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent, runs now through December 4th. 
theumbrellastage.org. And Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting since 1938. With thousands of new and antique rugs, Boston, Salem, Framingham, and online at LandryAndArkari.com. Last week on Wait, Wait, Tom Papa amused him what he would do if he had won the big Powerball jackpot. I was telling my wife, there's no way I would change. I mean, we would, we'd be smart. We could handle it. And then I found $10 in my jacket. I was like, I might leave them all today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. Join us for a truly life-changing news quiz this week from Louisville, Kentucky. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, a special counsel appointed to oversee investigations into Donald Trump. And later, Masha Gessen says, don't doubt any threat from Vladimir Putin. Also, the challenge to reform the sheriff's office in Los Angeles County. Meg Howery's new novel, all about ballet and betrayal. You know, the usual family stuff. And Tony Kushner's latest collaboration with Steven Spielberg. The Fablemans tells the story of a little boy who lives to make a life in films. One of the functions that art has for little kids is that it takes things that are scary and they're contained enough so that they're not overwhelming. First, our newscast at Saturday, November 19, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Climate negotiators in Egypt are struggling to reach agreement on how best to address climate change. NPR's Nathan Rott reports negotiations are in overtime this weekend. The most recent cover text we've seen here at COP27 is an attempt from the conference's host country, Egypt, to find some sort of compromise on a number of key outstanding issues. Divisions have been showing between richer developed countries, which have prospered using fossil fuels and warming the planet, and the less developed countries who are now suffering the consequences. Those lesser developed nations have been asking richer countries to pay for the loss and damage they're suffering from climate change right now. The most recent text doesn't make clear what the timeline of such a fund would be. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Sharmel Sheikh. The head of Ukraine's biggest private energy firm is suggesting that people who can afford to leave should be prepared to do that before the country, uh, before winter takes hold of the country. Speaking to the BBC's the chief executive of DTEC, Maxim Chimchenko, said leaving would reduce the burden on the fragile system. It's not emergency to leave immediately. But we need to organize ourselves in the most effective way of consumption. If you consume less, then hospitals with injured soldiers will have guaranteed power supply. The government says Russian missile strikes have crippled almost half of Ukraine's energy network. 
One of the two men killed by a missile that hit a village in southeastern Poland has been buried. His funeral services were held today. The other funeral is set to be held tomorrow. The two were killed by what Warsaw and other Western allies say was a Ukrainian air defense missile that went astray while trying to shoot down a Russian missile. Ukraine, however, has disputed that the explosion was an accident. The blast sparked concern about the potential of a wider conflict. Twitter remains up and running this morning. There have been fears about the site's vulnerability after mass resignations this week. NPR's Camila Dombanovsky reports that CEO Elon Musk had summoned some of the remaining staff to headquarters. Musk tweeted a few photos early Saturday morning from what he called Twitter HQ code review, showing the CEO flashing a thumbs up sign with a couple dozen people, as well as a whiteboard with a diagram sketching out how the site works behind the scenes. Many Twitter users seemed to be bracing for the site to collapse entirely. So far, that hasn't happened. Elon Musk says the site is actually doing record traffic, mocking people who have predicted a collapse is imminent. Now, former staffers say the site faces risks with a vastly reduced workforce maintaining its code. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Baker has filed a bill to create a $130 million reserve fund to help meet what he calls a dramatic increase in demand for emergency shelter assistance. Baker says the need is being driven largely by recent migrant arrivals in Massachusetts. WBUR's Gara Hogopian reports. The governor says the arrival of families from Ukraine, Afghanistan, Haiti, and Venezuela is putting more pressure on an emergency shelter system that's already running at full capacity. He says the money would be used to expand capacity and recruit and retain workers. Funding would also go towards setting up a temporary center for newly arrived families and would help place students in local schools through fiscal year 2024. In addition, the spending bill includes about $10 million to help the RMV implement the law allowing undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. A Worcester County man has been sentenced to eight months in prison for flying a helicopter without a license. Prosecutors say Antonio Santonastaso took off and landed the aircraft in his backyard more than 50 times in 2018. He lost his pilot's license in 2000 after taking part in the theft of a helicopter from Norwood Airport. Members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra perform this afternoon, but not at Symphony Hall. The Chamber Orchestra concert will take place at Jeremiah E. Burke High School in Dorchester. The 3 p.m. concert is part of a program to build and strengthen connections with the local community. In sports, last night the Celtics beat the Pelicans 117 to 109, and tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Blackhawks. It is 37 degrees in Boston, sunny today, and highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Capital One, offering Capital One Shopping, a downloadable browser extension that searches various sites for shoppers. What's in your wallet? More at CapitalOneShopping.com.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. I am confident that this appointment will not slow the completion of these investigations. Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing an independent investigator will take charge of two criminal probes into conduct by former President Donald Trump. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson was at the Justice Department announcement yesterday. She joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us, Kerry. Happy to be here. What is the mandate for the special prosecutor? The prosecutor is going to oversee the ongoing investigation of classified materials the FBI found at Trump's Florida resort over the summer and possible obstruction of justice there. And he's going to oversee key aspects of the investigation into the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The official paperwork from the Justice Department mentions whether any person or entity broke the law by interfering with the peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election and the certification of the Electoral College vote held in Congress that day. You know, there have already been 900 cases against people who rioted at the Capitol or beat up the police on January 6th. Those cases will remain with the U.S. attorney right here in Washington. Kerry, the Justice Department's been investigating January 6th for almost two years now. Mar-a-Lago documents case for months. What is a special prosecutor uh, going to bring to ongoing investigations? Merrick Garland says there are extraordinary circumstances here that merit a special prosecutor, a need for independence and accountability. As for the timing of this decision, former President Trump announced he was running for office again this week, and the current president, Joe Biden, is inclined to run for re-election in 2024, and that may create a conflict of interest or at least the appearance of one. And what do we know about Jack Smith? He's a, registered as a political independent. He's been a prosecutor in Brooklyn and Nashville. And during the Obama administration, he ran the Public Integrity Unit at the Justice Department when it was recovering from the botched prosecution against the late Senator Ted Stevens. But for the last several years, Smith has been a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. He's moving back to the U.S. now, and he's going to start work as special counsel immediately. He wasn't at the Justice Department for the big announcement because he had a bicycle accident and had to have surgery on his knee. But in a written statement, Jack Smith promised to exercise independent judgment. But in the end, he reports to the attorney general. How independent can a special counsel really be? There's a whole set of regulations about this. They say the special counsel operates outside of the day-to-day oversight of the Justice Department. Jack Smith can decide whether and when to consult with the attorney general. But Merrick Garland can request briefings and overrule the special counsel if he wants to. If that happens, the Justice Department has to notify Congress a kind of extra layer of oversight. This is now the second special counsel to investigate people close to Donald Trump. What's his reaction? The former president told Fox News this is a political move. He's been going through this for six years, first with the Mueller probe, now this. Trump says it's unfair, and he hopes Republicans have the courage to fight this, perhaps by conducting investigations of the Justice Department and the FBI through the Congress. Last night, Trump called this a witch hunt, just as he's done so many times before. Meanwhile, inside the Biden White House, a spokeswoman says they had no advance notice of the Justice Department, a move on a special counsel, And Biden has pledged not to interfere with the work of the Justice Department. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson, thanks so much. My pleasure. Later today, in All Things Considered, the legacy of America's first woman Speaker of the House from someone who knew and worked with her. 
longtime staffer on how Speaker Pelosi wielded her power during key legislative and political battles during her years on Capitol Hill. You can listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. Russia conducted an onslaught of airstrikes from Lviv to Kharkiv this past week, even as its troops are in retreat on the battlefield. The attacks have caused widespread casualties and crippled Ukraine's power system as the country heads into the first full winter of the war. Masha Gessen is a staff writer for The New Yorker and joins us now from New York. Masha, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you for having me. When Russia suffers a defeat, do they begin to increase bombardment of civilian targets? It certainly appears that way. And, you know, this isn't the first war in which Russia has behaved this way. In fact, this is exactly the sort of approach we saw in Chechnya and in Syria after that. Um, It's a war of total destruction. That's how Russia fights wars. Mm. Investigators um, on the ground say they've uncovered what appear to be interrogation rooms, uh, perhaps even torture chambers in Kherson. Uh, now that Ukrainians are back uh, in their city. Can we follow the orders back to the Kremlin on those places? I don't know that we can follow the orders to torture people back to the Kremlin, but I don't really think that that's the question. At this point, we have seen so much evidence of Russian troops, Russian authorities, Uh, committing war crimes in every territory that has been liberated by Ukraine, beginning with the liberation of the western suburbs of Kiev in April. So at this point, if we even imagined that Russian authorities were not aware of the atrocities that troops were committing in the occupied territories, the Kremlin has had six, seven months to make war crimes punishable within its own ranks. That doesn't happen. So whether it's the Kremlin ordering its troops to commit war crimes or explicitly tolerating systematic war crimes, right? We're talking about systematic atrocities. We're talking about seeing basically the same picture everywhere that, uh, in every territory that Ukrainians liberate from Russians we see civilian casualties, mass graves, torture chambers, and I'm not even mentioning you know, the, the systematic destruction of civilian infrastructure, which is also a war crime. Earlier this month, you uh, said in The New Yorker that the West ought to take the Russian threats of nuclear attack seriously. How seriously? <laughs> well, very, very seriously. I mean, my argument is that when Vladimir Putin talks about possibly using nuclear weapons, he means it. He means that he sees this as an option. It's not a rhetorical device. It's not um, It's not something that he wouldn't do. And the problem with some of the analysis that we have seen of Putin's nuclear saber rattling is that it applies a Western rational framework and basically argues that it would not be in Putin's strategic interest Mm -hmm. to use nuclear weapons. What my argument is, is that in this universe in which Putin is waging this war and threatening to use nuclear weapons, there is a rational way of thinking his way to using nuclear weapons. But how does the West contend with that? 
Well, the West has to, first of all, face the fact that some strategies that the West is quite attached to, such as threatening Putin with economic sanctions, don't work. They, in fact, sort of cause him to double down and and they do not, importantly, produce the kind of mass resentment and unrest that somehow a lot of Western analysts believe will magically appear mm-hmm. if enough economic pressure is applied. So what, what can Putin possibly be afraid of? It is possible that the threat, the credible threat of an extreme conventional military response to the use of any kind of nuclear weapon in Ukraine would work. Masha, I must ask, is it conceivable to you that one day Vladimir Putin wakes up and says, okay, that's enough. I'm, I'm going to get our forces out of Ukraine. It hasn't worked out. It is not conceivable to me that Putin would decide to pull out of Ukraine. He has staked his entire presidency on this war. So for him, anything but total domination of Ukraine is not an option. And what that means for Ukrainians, unfortunately, is that anything but total devastation of Ukraine is not an option, since obviously he is not succeeding Mm -hmm. in occupying Ukraine. He is going to try to succeed in devastating Ukraine, which is why we're seeing all these strikes on civilian infrastructure. And so Ukrainians are looking at a long, cold winter with devastated infrastructure. So that means no electricity, no heat, no running water in a lot of places. It's He's going to make life hell for Ukrainians, I think, all over the country. Masha Gessen of The New Yorker, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. There was a miraculous crash landing in Wisconsin this week. A twin-engine turboprop bound from New Orleans to Waukesha went down onto a green at the Western Lakes Golf Club on board. Three humans and 53 rescue dogs. All are safe, though there were some minor injuries for humans and canines. A director for the Humane Animal Welfare Society, that's PAWS for short, as in rhymes with PAWS, told the Washington Post the flight was one of their regularly scheduled trips to bring at-risk adoptable dogs from southern shelters to Wisconsin. Many of the dogs, now known as the Western Lakes Loves, are already available for adoption. Haw's Maggie Tate Techman added at a press conference, it is a lot of just comforting them and caring for them. Deputy Fire Chief, who was reportedly one of the responders at the crash site, has already taken home one of the dogs and calls her Marley. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll consider a novel about forgiveness set against the backdrop of the New York City ballet scene. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. And Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Special Counsel Jack Smith is promising to exercise independence and to move forward the Justice Department's investigations involving former President Trump without pause. Smith is a former war crimes prosecutor. He was named by Attorney General Merrick Garland to oversee the investigations into Trump's handling of government documents and a separate January 6th probe. Western New York is getting slammed by heavy lake-effect snow. Several feet have fallen since Thursday, and more snow is expected this weekend. New York's governor has issued a state of emergency in several counties. And Elon Musk tweeted a few photos this morning amid fears from Twitter users that the site could collapse following mass resignations this week. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and now it's time for sports. But it's hard to talk about sports. The FIFA World Cup kicks off tomorrow with no beer. All the controversy surrounding the cup, can we still enjoy the games? In Doha is an assuredly sober NPR's Tom Goldman. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. How are you? So a lot has been made, a lot of buzz, pun intended, about the fact that no beer will be sold in the stands despite FIFA's $75 million sponsorship agreement with Budweiser. What happened? How are fans taking it? Well, it was obvious uh, recently that Qatari officials were uncomfortable with alcohol sales. They kept scaling back uh, arrangements until FIFA, soccer's international governing body, announced the beer ban in stadiums yesterday. Now, fans' reactions range from anger to understanding. One fan told me it's part of the culture in this Muslim-majority country and we respect it. Another said, eh, maybe it's better not to drink at matches. You'll pay more attention. I have to ask, does this mean that Qatar also will not honor its agreement to permit gay pride flags in the stadium? Well, interesting question. There is concern that the beer ban indicates FIFA isn't really in charge of this event. Qatari officials are. And official promises about, for instance, all people being welcome, including LGBTQ people, won't be honored. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. We've heard reports for months, years really, uh, about conditions from migrant workers who got um, 
really built the country's infrastructure to make it ready for this event. The head of FIFA, uh, very sharp today, talking about what he called the hypocrisy of Western nations to criticize Qatar over over its human rights policies. Tell us. Yeah, that. That, that's a rather stunning press conference uh, President Gianni Infantino held, um, and and in that press conference he said FIFA is very much calling the shots with Qatar, and yes, everyone is welcome. You know, this press conference really turned into a long, often angry monologue by Infantino. He blasted Western critics uh, of this World Cup and Qatar. He pointed to what he calls Europe's restrictive immigration policy and said it was, as you said, hypocritical to go after Qatar's policies with migrant workers and human rights that have been the focus of so much attention. One of the things he said, and I'm quoting, what we Europeans have been doing for the last 3,000 years, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. You know, I would like, it's the biggest sporting event in the world, and I'd like to ask you about, you know, actually applying the human foot to the football. Uh, the sport, but can we really enjoy the soccer when we're aware of all the terrible things between bribery uh, scandals and human rights violations that uh, that led up to this World Cup? Yeah, you know, you ask that question, it sounds a lot like the dilemma we faced earlier this year at the Winter Olympics in China, where alleged human rights abuses were an issue there as well. You know, Scott, it either turns you away from the event or forces you to divide your brain. Um, one longtime critic and activist, uh, Professor Jules Boykoff, I know you know him, you've had him on the show. Yeah. Um, he told me, you can do both. Cheer for the teams and players we like at the World Cup while also fiercely critiquing the injustices baked into the event. So those who want to cheer... They can start tomorrow as host Cotter plays Ecuador to open this very controversial tournament. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman on the job in Doha. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Voters in Los Angeles have ousted their sheriff after just one term. Alex Villanueva wasn't exactly the progressive reformer that he'd pledged to be, doing things like launching criminal investigations into his critics. And now retired Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna confronts what to do with the deeply troubled department. Frank Stoltz of member station KPCC in Los Angeles joins us. Frank, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. This is the largest sheriff's department in the country, and it's received a lot of attention over the past few years. Legal attention. One sheriff went to federal prison. That's right. Uh, that happened after Sheriff Lee Baca and his undersheriff concocted this scheme to hide an inmate who was working as an FBI informant from the FBI. They did that in order to cover up jailhouse beatings by deputies. Two successive sheriffs billed themselves as reformers, Jim McDonald and Alex Villanueva, but had mixed results. Voters threw them out. Problems have persisted. The California Attorney General now investigating allegations of a pattern and practice of civil rights violations, including excessive use of force, and racial profiling, and one more thing, a federal jail monitor has described inhumane conditions inside the sprawling jail system here, uh, which the sheriff operates. And I gather the reports of gangs of deputies inside the sheriff's department. This is something you, you talk about in a new podcast. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. A report by Loyola Law School found there have been at least 18 subgroups where deputies from the same station wear matching tattoos 
Some of them appear to be benign. Others seem to act like street gangs. One at the East LA station is called the Banditos. They all wear this tattoo that features a skeleton wearing a sombrero, bandolier, and pistol. A lawsuit by a group of deputies said their bandito colleagues withheld backup for deputies that didn't support their misconduct and removed ammunition from the shotgun of uh, one rival deputy. For our podcast, Imperfect Paradise, the sheriff, I talked to one deputy who witnessed bandito deputies knock unconscious two colleagues during a fight. We distorted this deputy's voice because he fears retaliation. You said they were straight up gangs. I mean, you're calling them gangsters. Oh, yeah. There's no way anywhere around it. It's not a brotherhood. It's not a, a frat. It's not it's straight gangsters. They act like gangsters. They fight like gangsters. One deputy from the Compton station has accused a colleague of shooting someone to gain entry into a group known as the Executioners. Multiple sources say the FBI is investigating these groups. Membership in these secret groups appears to be small, but the concern is that they represent a culture of impunity inside the sheriff's department. Frank, is it harder to reform a sheriff's department than a police department, given the unique role that sheriffs fill? Yeah, it is, Scott. I mean, county sheriffs are elected by voters every four years and have a lot more autonomy than city police chiefs. Chiefs are appointed and can be much more influenced by city councils and mayors. So sheriffs are as much political creatures as they are law enforcement leaders, more influenced by their deputies unions, which often give to their political campaigns. Things got so bad with the outgoing sheriff here that L.A. voters approved a measure that now gives the Board of Supervisors the power to remove an elected sheriff with a four-fifths vote. Please tell us about the new sheriff in town, Robert Luna. Sure. He's a veteran law enforcement leader. He ran the Long Beach Police Department. But that's an agency with 800 officers. He'll now have nearly 10,000 deputies under his command. And he is an outsider going into a department that notoriously does not like outsiders. Frank Stoltz of member station KPCC. He has a new podcast out called Imperfect Paradise, The Sheriff. Thanks so much, Frank. Thanks, Scott. The southwestern corner of Florida that was devastated by Hurricane Ian in September had been a popular destination for low- and middle-income retirees. Two-thirds of fatalities from the storm were seniors. NPR's Danielle Kay met some older survivors in Fort Myers who are now grappling with the decision to repair their homes. In a parking lot surrounded by barren trees, dozens of people gather under a tent. It's Sunday morning at Southwest Baptist Church in Fort Myers. Service has been held outside since Hurricane Ian flooded their building. And I really like this church. The members, I mean, are so friendly here. It helps the healing, it really does. This is family. The congregation is about 98% seniors. And for many, like 70-year-old Robert Walker, it provides a comforting rhythm to his life. Walker's home got flooded, and he doesn't have insurance or the means to hire help. He's a retired builder, and he can do the work himself. The bad part is I'm 70. I'm old. And when I was young, this was no big deal. Well, now, you know, work 20 minutes, sit five. It's a big difference. About 30% of the population in Lee County, where Fort Myers is located, is age 65 or older. Median household income is about $60,000. Seniors were impacted to a large degree because of their inability to be mobile, their 
isolation. They live on their own. Their inability to evacuate. Erin McLeod is the CEO of Senior Friendship Centers, a nonprofit that works with nearly 10,000 seniors in southwest Florida. She says that for many, it's too expensive to evacuate. Since the storm hit, they've been helping seniors navigate displacement and delivering food. People are starting from scratch. There are a good number of folks that are on fixed incomes that are going to pack up and leave the state. Um, we talked to people that were couch surfing or living in their cars. When Hurricane Charlie hit Florida in 2004, McLeod says many older adults were unable to rebuild for years. Others moved out of the state. We know that Fort Myers, this area, as we knew it, will never be that way again. Marilyn Skinner is an 86-year-old widow who walks with a cane, a devoted member of Southwest Baptist Church. Every Friday we went to uh, Fort Myers Beach for breakfast and, and we all walked the beach and we rode the trolley. Now, she's in real estate limbo, waiting to see if her severely damaged house can be fixed. But she's made up her mind. She's not staying in Fort Myers. Her family wants her back in Indiana, but she's not sure what comes next. My siblings know that's never going to happen. And my children seem to think they're going to make up my mind for me, but they're not. <laughs> not yet. Skinner is fiercely independent. But she knows that at her age, relocating and creating a new community won't be easy. Would you guys like some barbecue? Sure. How many of you? Martha Butler. I'll be 90 years old. And this is my daughter I live with. I'm Martha Roth, and I'm 72. The two Marthas sit on their front porch waiting for an AC contractor to stop by. Everything is damp inside. Her furniture is piled up. Roth's house was flooded by an eight-foot storm surge. She still doesn't know if there's structural damage, but she says she's not going anywhere. I still have a roof. I don't have as much damage as, say, the guy across the street. Her house is paid off. It's their only housing option. FEMA gave her a check for almost $31,000 for repairs, but it will take more than that to rebuild. Then there's the loss of community. Many of Roth's neighbors aren't coming back. I mean, it's sad. These are friends, 20 years of friends. So you just take one day at a time and one foot forward and six feet back. John Bohannock, who's 79 and lives on Social Security, retired to Pine Island 22 years ago. It's a beautiful place to live. I mean, the island, the people. At night, you hear the frogs in the trees. He's living in a camper in his front yard. This island, across the bridge from Fort Myers, was among the hardest-hit areas in the region. The storm ripped the roof off of Bohannock's house. He wants to rebuild, but was turned down for a loan. He still seems in shock looking at his unlivable home. His eyes start to well up with tears. Doesn't seem real. Your whole life is gone, so if you'd like to see it. Bohannock leads the way up the shaky wooden stairs to his home. It's physically safe. You're not going to fall through the floor. Okay. Inside, furniture is tossed around. A thick layer of black mold is everywhere. This was my bedroom. Ceiling gone. Closet. Roof is gone. Dressers can't even open the drawers up in there. Bohannock's son signed him up for FEMA. He's not technologically savvy, and registering with FEMA requires computer literacy. I, I don't, don't use the Internet. I don't use a computer. The only thing I have is a cell phone my daughter-in-law bought me a year and a half ago. And uh, it's a job trying to just figure out how to use it. He knows he won't go back home to Chicago, he says, but he grapples with what's next. 
if it's going to cost more to repair the house than to re you know build a new one, it'd be foolish to have it repaired. And until I can get contractors out here and start coming up with prices, I I can't do anything. But uh, oh, I'd love to stay here. I mean, it's uh, you know it's so peaceful and quiet. Even though his heart is telling him to rebuild, he says his head isn't too sure. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Fort Myers. NPR's Marisa Pinalosa produced this report. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. London's Victoria and Albert Museum is one of the world's leading showcases of the decorative arts and design. It was also named after two individuals, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, closely associated with Britain's Age of Empire. Willem Marx reports that a new exhibit on African fashion seeks to address that legacy. We're standing in the bustling heart of the British capital's museum district. Just yards away is London's Natural History Museum and the Science Museum. But we're standing outside a handsome red brick and stone building commissioned by a monarch and her husband, Victoria and Albert, who for many epitomized the era of empire. Yet for the first time ever, this museum is hosting an exhibition focused on fashion from a continent, Africa, that suffered hugely under colonialism during that exact same period. So you kind of enter into this lovely peachy area with the... With the Christine Chizinska is the lead curator for this exhibition called simply Africa Fashion. And as we walk into a softly lit two-story roundhouse in the heart of the museum, she points to black and white photographs, artwork and textiles selected to tell the story of the continent's couture over the past several decades. This is the historical floor, but we do the displays, which include videos and rows of eye-catching outfits, seek to capture the artistic flourishing that the end of the colonial era encouraged in Africa one that Chasinska says has too often been ignored. It's a moment where, as um, African heritage people, we gained our independence back. The world was looking at us, and boy, did we give them something to look at. The Victoria and Albert Museum, or VNA, has long been known for its focus on the history of art and design. Chasinska, a former fashion designer turned scholar, is its first ever senior curator of African and African diaspora fashion. She says the museum's worked hard to acknowledge its own legacy. We do address our colonial history, we name it, we name the fact that that is why our collections perhaps have gaps in, and now is the time to start to address those gaps and to work collaboratively with experts in many different fields across the African continent, in my case, to fill the gaps and to tell new stories. And amid the history, there are contemporary designs on display, including those of Imane Ayisi, the first designer from sub-Saharan Africa to have showcased work in cities like Paris as part of the exclusive haute couture calendar. From his Paris studio, the Cameroonian explained the importance of the Victoria and Albert exhibit as a tool for highlighting the variety of African artistry. It's important that we're shown this, he says. It will educate a lot of people, people who don't know Africa well, who will discover both what's already been achieved and what's currently being worked on in Africa. Also featured in this exhibit is Artsy Ifrak, a ballet dancer turned designer based in Morocco, who says the focus should be on reframing the continent's future creative output. We have to be very sensitive about and allow Africa fashion and designer from Africa to grow in a way that we not have to call it any more Africa fashion, but international fashion that comes from Africa.
Ifrak often works with traditional textiles and says items that may live in museums elsewhere can in modern Africa exist as everyday products. When you are in Africa, you can actually see it on the street. And there is still people who does this artisanal work that you can see in museums. But in Africa, it's actually available for people to buy and have them in their own house. Africa's creative forces, not just in fashion, but art and music too, are today increasingly celebrated worldwide. With its willingness to acknowledge colonial missteps, the Victoria and Albert has sought to place that success in context. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released documents show Florida paid $1.5 million to an in-state aviation company overseeing the flight of migrants to Martha's Vineyard. However, the documents obtained by the Boston Globe also show the Ohio-based charter flight company involved had quoted the state a price of only about $150,000 for the effort. It is unclear why Florida paid the extra money. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, flew roughly 50 migrants to the vineyard from Texas in September. A sports betting deadline looms. Companies that want to offer sports gambling in Massachusetts need to submit an application and a non-refundable $200,000 application fee to the state gaming commission by Monday. The deadline applies to the state's two casinos and one slots parlor and also to the companies interested in getting a mobile betting license. It is 37 degrees in Boston, sunshine today with highs in the low 40s. WBUR supporters include Museum of Russian Icons, presenting artists for Ukraine, transforming ammo boxes into icons. More at museumofrussianicons.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at plymouthrock.com and Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Meg Howery's new novel, They're Going to Love You, takes us into a family where ballet is lifeblood livelihood, dreams, and nightmares. Carlisle grows up in the ballet, the daughter of the Sugar Plum Fairy and another one-time dancer. Her parents divorce, and her mother brings her to Ohio where she grows up, but 
Carlisle only feels truly alive, alert, and dazzled during the short trip she spends with her father, Robert, and his partner, James, in New York. Yet when the story first opens to us, it is decades later, and they are all estranged. And Carlisle gets word that her father is about to die. Meg Howery, who performed with the Joffrey and City Ballet of Los Angeles and has appeared on Broadway, as well as writing previous novels, including The Wanderers, joins us from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What does Carlisle find growing up in the Bank Street apartment in Greenwich Village of Robert and James? I think she finds an adult world where she can sort of see herself mm -hmm. belonging. You know, in, a, in Ohio, where she's growing up, she's a too tall, odd girl that likes ballet. And in the world of her father's place and his partner's place in New York, she feels seen and people talk to her and she can project herself into this world as a, as a future adult. Yeah. Carlisle developed strong feelings for James, her father's partner. So I crush her true love. <laughs> I think... There's this incredibly interesting relationship between young people and mentors. And it's a really powerful situation and sometimes a dangerous one. But, you know, you're so hungry as a young person or you can be so hungry for that older person that talks to you like an adult. And for Carlisle, James is that. He's that, he's that person that speaks to her in a way that no one else does. May I ask, what was your path from dancer to writer? I didn't imagine that I would become a writer. Um, the only thing in my life other than dance that I've done is read books. And I didn't realize that all that time I was reading books, I was sort of growing a writer inside me. But I think that's how it happened. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s and I had gotten off a long tour and I actually had some money, so I wasn't anxious about the next gig. And I had a little time to sit down. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll write that story that's been in my head for a while. Mm. It's interesting to me that when we first meet Carlisle, uh, she's 43 and a choreographer. Mm. Does she feel like she is a fulfilled choreographer or a somewhat failed dancer? Oh, that's interesting. I think... Like most artists, she constantly moves the goalposts of what success looks like for her. So she's working, she's made things, she is successful, but she's always wanting more. And yes, a part of her, her identity is wrapped up in what didn't happen for her as a young dancer. And that's a hard thing to move past. Yeah. I, without giving too much away, I want to ask you about one of my favorite characters, and that's Alex. Yeah. He's a gangly athletic kid from Florida, a dancer who says something a little insensitive when we first meet him, but I think it's safe to say makes up. Mm -hmm. I was said to dislike him, but it's wonderful the way you open him up to us. Uh, he's a favorite character of mine too, so I'm glad you liked him. It was fun to throw him into the mix of these very complicated people and see what happens. I find myself a little haunted by 
the fact that both Carlyle and her father have a hard time knowing who should forgive who. Yes. And so there's this stalemate that lasts 19 years. You know, we don't really get 19 minutes of life back, much less 19 years. Yes. From the beginning of working on this book, I wanted to look at what I think is the very complicated nature of forgiveness and the weird power of not forgiving someone, what that wields over another person and the kind of control it gives you. And so I always envision this book about a, a conversation about the, the role of forgiveness in our lives and what really we're hanging on to when we choose not to forgive someone. What are we hanging on to when we choose not to forgive someone? I think it's an interesting question to ask yourself, what do I lose if I forgive this person? Why? What, what is gone from me if I just offer total forgiveness? I think a lot of times it's a kind of power that we want to hold on to, a way to control things that are uncontrollable, like how we feel and love and look at each other in this world, which is not something, you know, we can really control. Meg Howery's novel, They're Going to Love You. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. The Fablemans is a romantic and sharp-eyed love letter to film and family. The Oscar buzz and critical acclaim is almost deafening for this latest film by Steven Spielberg. It stars Michelle Williams and Paul Dano as the parents of a Jewish kid who wants to make movies. I want you to make a camping trip movie. You can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trips on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Don't Please. be selfish. She just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to just to... died. It's, it's, how is that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. It's a love letter Steven Spielberg needed the help of Tony Kushner to write. He, of course, is uh, the playwright who received a Pulitzer for Angels in America and Oscar nominations for previous Spielberg films, Munich and Lincoln. Tony Kushner joins us now from New York. Tony, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Please explain this to me, because it's one thing to write, uh, you know, to put words in the mouth. Well, actually, it must be daunting to put words in the mouth of Abraham Lincoln. Yes, it uh, was. But, but it's one thing to put words in the mouth of a historical figure or a literary figure. These were Steven Spielberg's parents. Yes, I mean, they were and they weren't. It, uh, we decided to call the family the Fablemans. There was never a moment where we thought we were going to call them the Spielbergs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that pretty much from the time that I started doing this, like, 81-page novella that was a sort of a fictional take on his memories, there was a, a bit of a kind of objective distance between what actually happened and the work of fiction that we were creating. Because this isn't a documentary and it's not a Spielberg family album. I mean, it's a, it's a dramatic story with a beginning, middle and an end. I mean, you know, and I felt very honored that he was letting me into this complicated and sometimes difficult and painful story. And 
you know, I really felt like I got to know his family very well by the end of the process. Wow. So without giving too much away, when young Sammy crashes his model train set to film it, is that poetic license or? No, it's not. It wasn't where I thought we were going to start the movie, but at some point we were talking about something that had happened to him as a teenager. And I said, do you remember what the first movie you ever saw was? And he said, oh, absolutely. It was the greatest show on earth, the Cecil B. DeMille movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, how old were you? And he said uh, uh, that he was uh, six. And I had seen the movie a while ago. I honestly don't like Cecil B. DeMille's movies at all. But I remembered how what a weird movie it is. And there's a lot of violence in it. It's about adultery. Jimmy Stewart is a clown who was a doctor who murdered somebody. By It's like, it's really 1950s kind of psychopathology on parade. And there is in the middle of it this huge and kind of brilliantly done train crash. And that was what Stephen remembered most from seeing the movie. And uh, I said, well, you must have been scared to death. And he said, yeah, it was really traumatic. And then we started talking about the first movie he made, that he had had these trains that he'd gotten on Hanukkah and that he had crashed them together. And I said, I think there's a connection here. I think this is... And I was very moved by that because yeah. I love the way that little kids in order to make the world less overwhelming, one of the functions that art has for little kids is that it takes things that are scary and it sort of presents you with them and they're contained enough so that they're not overwhelming immediately, but they're still scary. And then you, if it's a book, you read it over and over and over and over again. And each time you read it, you gain a certain kind of mastery over what's scary in the world. You, you see the film and you want to say, oh, that's the resemblance between children and artists. Yeah. I mean, I was just at Stephen Sondheim's memorial and that gorgeous song from Sunday in the Park with George, Children and Art. Mama, he makes things. Mama, they're good. Just as you said from the start, children and art. I think it's, um, as a joke, I kept referring to this as the portrait of the artist as a young man. You're watching a, a child develop a mastery, and that development is in part driven by a need to make things that aren't stable feel stable. Anti-Semitism is a real presence in this film. There are some photogenic goyish jerks yeah. who, who terrorize young Sammy Fableman, and I, I gather from the interviews I've read, this is based on real incidents in, in Steven Spielberg's life. You were born in New York, but grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Something you know from your own life, too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't terrifying or life-threatening ever. My sister and I went to a private elementary school. It was an Episcopal day school, and um, it was a great school in terms of education. But there were two kids who were incredibly, uh, you know, nasty bullies. You know, they soon figured out that one way they could really torture me and my sister uh, was about being, we were the only Jews, and, and they really made a deal out of that. And it got ugly, and uh, we weren't injured in any way. It was, uh, you know, but, but all through my uh, childhood and adolescence, I encountered Sort of what Stephen encountered. I mean, 
he experiences this bullying when he's a, a new kid in his high school, when his father moves the whole family to California. And, uh, you know, the two photogenic anti-Semitic jerks, they're definitely uh, photogenic jerks, but they're not really bread in the bone anti-Semites. I think they're, uh, one of them is clearly sort of mentally ill. The other one, it just sort of goes along for the laughs of it. People will um, will watch this film at a time when the Anti-Defamation League and other sources say there's more than 30% rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. The anti-Semitism that's depicted in the Fablemans is of a schoolyard variety. I mean, Theodore Adorno from the Frankfurt School, who grew up in pre-Nazi Germany, in one of his books, Minimum Morality, he makes this famous comment. He says that while he's walking through the streets of Berlin, right before Hitler comes to power, and there are squads of brown shirts everywhere, and Adorno says, you know, the I, I was angry at myself for the terror, because the terror that I felt when I would come uh, across these people was very clearly the terror I felt when I was a kid on the schoolyard being bullied uh, for being Jewish. And I kept upbraiding myself that this is a much worse situation and, and I'm, I'm diminishing it. Um, mm -hmm. And then he said, with a little bit of distance, reflecting back on it, I realized that it wasn't just an attempt to diminish it, that there was actually some factual basis for it, that probably the kids that bullied him in the schoolyard are the ones who grew up to be Nazis. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump was a infamous uh, bully. He had to be sent away to military school because he was threatening kids in his uh, high school. And, uh, and he grew up to be the godfather of this new recrudescence of American fascism. People receive sort of lazily receive tropes about Jews uh, that they pass along, but there's a difference for me between people who don't know any Jews and and I mean when my mother was dying in a hospital in Louisiana, a very nice nurse came up to my sister and I and said, "Are you Jewish?" And uh, we said yes, and she said, "That's what I heard. Could I see your horns?" And she oh, and she you're really thought. Me. When was this? This was you know. This was not in the 15th century. This was, you know, 1990. Uh, it was in Louisiana. And uh, it was shocking. Um, but I'm convinced that she wasn't a Jew hater. She wasn't an anti-Semite in that sense. I find people like that. It's sad because they need to be educated and they haven't been. But I don't feel that I'm threatened by people like that. I'm threatened by somebody like Doug Mastriano. I'm, I'm threatened by, you know, all these white Christian nationalists. Who, who ran for office, a few of whom got elected. Tony Kushner, who uh, has collaborated once again with Steven Spielberg, their new film, The Fablements. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. It's very nice to see you again. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. The Umbrella Stage Company, presenting Jonathan Larson's Tony and Pulitzer-winning rock musical, Rent, runs now through December 4th, theumbrellastage.org. And the New Art Center Shop, a local artist co-op. Buy a unique handmade gift and support artists this holiday season. Information at newartcenter.org. Later today on This American Live. The Russian soldier calls a Ukrainian hotline that Russian fighters can call to surrender. You won't be castrating us, he asks. He really doesn't know if he should trust them. The Ukrainian on the hotline answers, don't worry. Stories of people daring to make the leap from one world into another. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.